Good morning. How many think they should leave the clock alone? Anybody? I think that's one bill they could pass through Congress and have universal agreement, and they need to do that soon. I set mine up last night myself, not knowing the phone would do it for me. So I was up one hour before I had to be, and I was trying to wonder what was going on. And the, on the, 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 the preachers I listened to on Sunday morning weren't on yet. It was an infomercial about some weird thing. I'm thinking, what's going on? And I was up at 5 in the morning. So I'm getting tired. This should be short, don't you think? <laughs> anyway, what, we appreciate Fried Hardman being here. Listen, this happens like every year, and it's, it's not dull routine yet. We love having you here. We appreciate the, the course being, crowd being with us and with that group from Free. We just love seeing them pull in. And, and we had a couple of these guys really good last night. We had great conversation. Their stories were so compelling to me. And this morning they were sitting on our pew and I said, it's so nice of you. You haven't gotten sick of us yet. And he says, we have to stick with the people we were with last night. That's the rule that he gives us. <laughs> that made me feel so good. Anyway. If you'll make your way to James chapter 2, we're going to be in James chapter 2 for just a little bit today. A couple of prayer requests. Don't forget uh, Wanda Ferguson right here. You know, she had this cancer for a long time, and they're just deciding we're going to stop that treatment and see what happens. You're getting pretty close to that, aren't you? She's really nervous about that. We all are. And so do not let up your prayers for her as that draws near. But also Perry Wood, who sits down here, been gone for a while with this pancreatitis attack. He has a cyst the size of a volleyball on that pancreas. Can you imagine that? I, I don't understand. It's back in here somewhere. And they're doing surgery tomorrow in, in, at, at Mayo Clinic. And so please keep him in your prayers. He hates being the center of attention, and I've got this picture of him holding two teddy bears in the hospital, and he was embarrassed by it, and I said, well, as soon as you come back, I'm going to show it, so I'm, I'm ready for him to come back and to show it, but anyway, just but keep Perry Wood and, and, uh, and Wanda in your prayers in a special way this, this week and the coming days. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. So James is writing this letter to a group of people who think we're doing pretty good spiritually. Our faith is vibrant and alive and we're doing well. But James has seen some things that concern him and he's trying to wake them up a little bit. So you're going to, as we read through this, you're going to hear a lot of questions. He peppers them with questions, making them think and making them analyze and look again at their lives because there's some things that aren't quite right. And the only way you can do that rhetorically, you ask a question for several reasons, but James is asking to make them look again at what they already think they know. He is giving them a spiritual and this morning, you're going to take one. You're going to experience this too. Some of you maybe are unfamiliar with this. Most of us are. We're not used to this. But you know what a physical is. A physical is when you go to a doctor and he does all these tests. You get on a treadmill and you do a stress test and you take blood pressure and all these things because your body, 
your body will send signals that things aren't right before you ever feel them. And if you can get them early on and head that off, you can, you can not have to face the ultimate breakdown of your health if you'll just listen to those symptoms, listen to those signals the body's sending. So there's spiritually you can do this. Spiritually, before you realize you're really in dire straits in, in, your, in your walk of faith, you, you can pay attention and analyze your faith and see, are there some places where I'm weakening that I need to give some attention? And so that's what James is doing. I want you to join me, James chapter 2. Question number one, and I'm, uh, we're going to do this by section. Um, the section over here, these two sections, college group right here and, these, and this group over here, your word, your word is useful. Would you say that together? Useful. I will say it again. Uh, say it to where I can hear it. Useful. Useful is the first one. So when I look at you or when I point to you, you say, now you got to pay attention. I know, I know you, uh, we lost an hour and stuff. I know that. So the only thing I'm going to do to keep you awake is to point at you and hear you say, all right, so you two in this section right here, uh, these two, you should be the strongest because you've got the strongest numbers, okay? Your word is visible. So everybody say visible. visible. Ooh, did you hear the unity? Uh, the brotherhood is just strong. Okay, say it again. Visible. Visible. So that's, I don't even have to practice. That's good. Now you all uh, are probably the weakest in numbers, but you look like you're the strongest of faith. So you've got <laughs> useful, visible. Your word is complete. So uh, ready, set, go. Complete. Yeah, you jumped the gun on that. Good though. So your word is, your word is, visible. your word is, Good, nice. Boy, you guys got strong voice. And this is your spiritual this morning. You're going to take one, and as you go through this, listen, don't just listen and say, is that a really good point or not? You need to take the totality of your life and measure and evaluate while we're doing this. you got a job to do, and that is gauge your life spiritually. Question number one appears, James chapter 2. What good is, notice that there's question after question, you notice. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Question. Can that faith save him? Question. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Question. Then comes a statement. So, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Question number one. Is your faith useful? Is it useful when somebody has a need and somebody is in dire straits or somebody in our community of faith here has a need, do, does your faith actually take register that? Does it take note of that? Does it do anything to contribute to that need? If you have something that someone else needs, faith says reach out with it and help them. Too many people, I think, uh, think that our faith is a personal thing. Do you have a personal walk with God? There is such a thing as a personal walk with God, but listen, it doesn't leave it personal. It becomes a social thing. 
Biblical faith, living faith by its nature, looks for another object upon which to cast its favor. That's what biblical faith does. It causes you to rise up out of your life and concern yourself with somebody else. But we can go long stretches. Any of us can, myself included, go through long stretches of time where all I concern myself with is me, my family, my stuff, my schedule, my deadlines, my to-do stuff, and I'm just thinking about me and if you do that, your faith dies a slow death. Rigor mortis is setting in. Because you will not, with biblical faith, become isolated and think only of yourself. You will look up and see the lives of other people. One of the worst things you can do is isolate yourself and think that it's just about me getting my life right so I memorize my verses and I do my Bible study and I, but I never actually look my eyes up towards somebody else and see what kind of needs are out there that I can actually meet. Right now I'm reading articles about social media churches where they're meeting online. They're in churches but these churches meet in social media land. And they hear the sermon, and they might be able to message other people from different places, and they think that's enough community. Now, I know, I know in Hebrews when he says, don't forsake the assembling, that he never envisioned virtual or cyber life, right? But I'm pretty sure he would say, that's not really what I have in mind for you. And this one article even described a person who had a virtual presence, an actual presence that they interacted with people almost like a robot in cyberspace, and they, they got baptized that way. And they're debating, can you baptize somebody virtually? I'm just sitting back and going, you know, really, I think there, there's this thing called you, you get together to spur one another on toward love and good works, and, it, it, and, and, and you know you had to do the holy kiss thing. It's like you have to be present. You have to interact and touch people. Now, I've got all these old ladies mad at me because I talked about, you know, be careful with those hugs, guys, you know. And now I've got all these old ladies mad, so I've got to back off from that. So we need to be touching each other. We need to be hugging each other in the right ways. We need to be handshaking. We need to interact with each other because that's part of spurring each other on and letting each other know we're not alone in this world. If your faith doesn't demand every day that you look around for people and by your belief in God, involve yourself... <clears throat> in the life of somebody else with a kind word, an encouraging note, a word of prayer for somebody, if it doesn't do that, your faith is in trouble because your faith has to be... You know, almost has to be useful. useful. Is your faith useful at all? When you get up tomorrow morning, I want you to think this. I think my faith today has to be useful. It has to make a difference in the lives of people that I interact with. It must, or it's not biblical, living, vibrant faith. It must interact. And so tomorrow, when you wake up, you go, today, somehow, because I believe in God, I need to bless somebody else. I need to be around somebody else. I need to engage somebody else and let them know they're loved by God. I remember being in Des Moines, Iowa, Grandview Church of Christ, the biggest church of Christ in Iowa, about 150 people maybe, because it's rough 
when you get up north, right? And so these people uh, had a, a person transfer, a, a, a girl from high school in Nashville, been a Christian for one year in her life, and she decides she's going to go to the University of Iowa in Des Moines. And she goes up there, and the first thing she does is she looks up the Church of Christ, the Grandview Church of Christ. She goes in there, and she finds them to be a loving group of people because, hey, when you get some new flesh around here, we want to love these people, right? Because, I mean, that's just not... Uh, common. So she gets in there, and she's a freshman. She's a starting volleyball player on the, on the college team. And, and as she goes in there, she's got her freshman year. She's really busy. She's got sports on the side, but she loves this church instantly. And so as this church is, is, is growing and maturing, there's a family in it that has twin, that's, that's pregnant with twins, and she has twins a, a week after she gets there. A week or two after she gets there. Well, what the church decides to do is we don't want her having to worry about cooking, so we're going we're gonna to provide meals for a whole week. Well, this college student, freshman college student, sees that and goes, you know, I want to do that, but I've never really cooked a whole meal myself. I don't really know how to do that. So uh, she calls a widow of the church, and she calls that lady who's known to be a good cook, and she says, I hear you're a good cook, and you go to church with me, and I... I, I I want to cook a meal for this family. I don't know how to do it. You tell me the ingredients. You tell me something to cook, and I'm going to bring the ingredients over, and you're going to teach me how to cook this, and then we're going to take it over to this family's house. Is that not amazing for a freshman in college? I mean, instantly. I, I, I met her, in, and, and I stopped, and I said, Who is she? And she was back there somewhere, and she held up her hand, and I said, Will you marry my son right now? Can we write the papers right now? You are what I'm looking for. That kind of faith that says, You know what? It's not all about me. It's not just me, and it's not just Bible class, not just memory verses. It's looking up and saying, How can I serve other people? Last Saturday, I did a funeral for a dear friend. His wife happens, uh, he was 53 years old, and his wife happened to be coming uh, to Harding Wednesday and stopped here for classes on Wednesday night. Some of you met her and her daughter, and they're devastated. I mean, he's had cancer for a couple years, but it's still devastating. He was way too young, and he was a godly, godly man who drew a lot of people to the church. The church house was packed, and half of them were community people, and half of them were church people. And I love this guy with all my heart. Well, as he was, he was having a rough time at one particular patch, and all he was, he was suffering and particularly bad, and he texted me and he said, okay, this, I'm having a horrible day today, and I, I need to pray for somebody. I, I have a sense that maybe there's something on your heart that I can pray for you for. Myatt had been born four days before, and that's all I was thinking about. That's all that Valley View was thinking about, if you remember that. It doesn't take long to remember that and bring that right back to your mind. And I said, there's got this little boy who was just born, and he's really struggling. It, it just, it's really frustrating to watch this. And I said, we could really use your prayers in this. And he says, I've got this. I've got this, and that's going to help me. And so he takes that, and every three days he says, I need an update, and I've got some ladies up here who are helping me with this, and we're praying for this. And he began to thank me, and he said, you know what? I've almost, I've almost, left behind my pain in my prayers for this boy. You think it works that way? Do you think faith can work that way when you're consumed with yourself and all of a sudden you say, you know what, I'm going to stop this and I'm going to look at somebody else and I'm going to concern myself, be consumed with somebody else and I'm going to pray with all my heart? He began to wrestle with my, I began to send pictures down there and he would inform the whole church and at his, at his funeral we had to show pictures of Myatt. 
I think that's how faith works. When you're so consumed with your stuff that it puts you in a misery and a kind of depression and all you're thinking about is what's happening in my life and my woe is me, lift yourself up out of your life for a while and look at somebody else. Somebody's asked me this before. I had a youth group guy who came back years later and said, you know, my faith never mattered much to me and it never really became a vibrant part of my life. What can I do to make it matter? And I said, there's only one answer to that. Serve somebody else. Spend some time blessing somebody else. So my question is, is your faith... Is your faith useful? Is it making any difference to anybody but you? James has to ask these readers in James chapter 2. Because faith, if it's biblical, is in that it reaches out and blesses somebody else. So tomorrow when you get up, you ask yourself, how can my faith be useful today? And when you go to bed tomorrow night, I want you to ask yourself, how is my faith useful to somebody else? But that's not the only thing James is concerned about. He's also concerned about, is your faith visible can it be seen notice what he says but someone's going to object James is like somebody's going to protest you have faith great I have some works show me your faith apart from your works if you can separate them I'll show you my faith by my works you can't separate them you believe God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder now here's what he's saying Demons believe what a lot of the things we've been singing. If you stand up in front of a group today and you say, Jesus is Lord, are you going to say amen? Yes, you are. Jesus is Lord. But listen, Satan believes that too. He knows it as a fact. He knows there's one God and he knows Jesus is Lord. He knows that already. So if you're a person who prides yourself on, hey, I made the confession every day. I confess my faith. Jesus is Lord. That puts you in league with Satan, y'all. You are equal with him. whoop de do right? The difference is this. Satan doesn't change his behavior at all in light of that truth. That knowledge and that awareness and that intellectual assent to Jesus as Lord does not change anything about him. And if it doesn't change anything about you, you're the same as Satan. Is that not true? You're not convinced. So your confession must be more than something you just say. It needs to be something I can see in you. It must be visible. I must be able to tell a difference between you and just any old person out there living their lives. If your faith is biblical and vibrant, it will impact your life in a way that others can see it. 2006, St. Louis Cardinals get to the postseason. They're going to face the Detroit Tigers in the 2006 World Series. This is a year every Christian knows. Cubs have only one date to remember. We have to remember several. 2006 is one of them. And on paper, you looked at paper, and everybody told you this. You look at the newspaper, and it says, you know, their pitching's better in Detroit. Their defense is better in Detroit. Their offense is definitely better in Detroit. Detroit's going to take it in five games. But there's one problem with this theory. World Series games aren't won on paper. They're won on the field. So the question becomes, are you as good as you say you are, or are you only as good as you play in the field? Cardinals won in five games. The answer is, you're only as good as you play in the field. 
I love the songs you've sung this morning. Great truths. Now show me out there you can live it. You see, I'm from Missouri. You know what our slogan is? Show me. Show me. It's great to come in here, and this is sort of like a rally. This is sort of like practice. This is sort of like we practice what we believe. We rehearse the truths that we know are true. The question is, do we really honor them and embody them when we leave this building? What if you were on a sports team, and you practiced all the time, and you never once played a game? Would you practice all your life for sports and never once put it to actual use on the playing field? Nobody would do that. What would be the point? Yes, what would be the point of all this worship and all this Bible class and all this confession and all this wonderful knowledge if all we ever did was rehearse it and then forget it when we leave that building, go out and live any way we want to, and then come back here again and rehearse again? Because your faith must be Yes, it's got to be visible. I've got to see that it makes some difference, that it registers with you somehow. I think the greatest example of this, and I'm going to do this one last time to embarrass this guy beyond belief. You're going to see him turn as red as his hair. He's a college student. Well, used to be, but he's with the college group over there. You're going to see him squirm. Just watch over there real carefully while I tell this story. Crowley's Ridge College has battle of the youth groups, and you plug these kids into these sports events, and, 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 and you try to win each one of them. So you put the best kids in the best events, and so bowling came up. And I, didn't, I wasn't aware of any of our kids who bowled at all, but I had two of them that stood up and said, I'm good at this. I'm good at this. I'm really good at bowling. They bowled a 36 and a 42. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, that's awful. Right? Perfect is 300. 36 and a 42. One of them was Aaron Beck. Where are you, Aaron? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's him. That's him. The other one is not here. But uh, Aaron was, and I, I went up to him afterwards and I said, what, what are you doing? That's not good in anybody's definition. He said, we are so good at the we. <laughs> you know what the we is? It's like virtual bowling. And they're good at virtual bowling, but when you get to an actual bowling lane, they don't know what they're doing, right? This is kind of what church is. It's, it's reality. It's reminding ourselves and rehearsing. But guys, it's got it's to translate into real behavior out there so that your life is visible and I can see it. See, invisible faith, faith that you swear is there, but nobody can see it, is not good enough. It's not living, it's not vibrant, and it's not biblical. The beep is sounding. Beep. There's no life to that one. It needs to be like a pacemaker. When you want to sit back and just do nothing, it forces you because you are prompted by your faith to act different. I need to know this. I need to know that even if a fellow member of the church is a frustrating person, you can be kind. That you can interact and even work with those people on a committee or you can work together with those people and be kind at church, that just because you don't have the same personality, so what? Your faith, if it's really visible, shows me itself when you can interact with people who are a little bit annoying and still be loving and kind. Show me that. That's when your faith is, it's visible. I can see it. It's great when your faith is useful because it blesses other people, but it also needs to be 
to where I can see it and know that it makes a difference. I should be able to drop into, I still believe this, I should be able to drop into any school district tomorrow and expect that our kids will be using different language than anyone else. That's when I look at it and I say, this is a visible difference that I can see between our faithful kids and the kids of the world who are just acting like world. I should be able to tell it on a Friday night if I go to the movie theater and see what movies you're going to. I should be able to expect that there's a little bit of a difference in attendance for Christian people at some movies than at others. And I should be able to expect that you control how your friends influence you because your faith informs who you hang around. That's what James wants them to know. So question number one is, is your faith... Yeah, does it help other people? And is your faith... Visible, can I tell a difference? And then we come to the third one. This is where he brings up a couple of Bible examples. Abraham and Rahab, and he says, is your faith complete? Is it complete? He's entirely too energetic for this on Sunday morning. Abraham, it says in Genesis 15, believed God, and God credited it, credited him counted as righteous for him. And then six, seven chapters later, Genesis 22, he's willing to offer his son. He puts that, ne- that, that, that knife above his throat and he's about to plunge it into his neck when God stops him. And God says, I'm going to keep my promise to you because you've obeyed me. Genesis 15, I'm going to make this promise because you believed. I'm going to keep this promise because you obeyed. Is Abraham made a recipient of saving faith because he believed or because he obeyed? The answer is yes. It takes both. Good behavior that's not motivated by faith doesn't save. There's lots of good citizens out there. Lots of good people who do lots of good things, but not prompted by their faith. And there's lots of people with lots of faith out there who don't do anything with it. Neither one of those is the combination that God's looking for. It's complete. You complete God's faith that you've got with your obedience, and together they cooperate, and it saves you. Rahab is the same way. Let me listen. Let me, let me read this just for a second, But what Rahab said. And then... I want you to be thinking about this. If Rahab, if everybody in the land believed what Rahab believed, why is only Rahab saved? Just ask yourself that question as I read this passage. This is when she explains to the two spies why she was willing to risk her life to hide them. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we, it's plural, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt 40 years ago. And, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who, uh, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you've devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house. If everybody believed it was inevitable this land is God's, why is only Rahab saved? She's the only one who did anything about it. 
Faith's great. Faith's necessary. But without your obedience, it's dead. Your faith has to be complete by adding your obedience to it. So we ask ourselves, is your faith... Oh, is your faith... Blessing other people, is your faith... Can I see it and is your faith... Have you done what God asked you to do? Now this is a little strange. This one will be custom made. These two look a lot the same, but this one will be custom made because God's asking you to do something for him and it may not be the same for everybody. In Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, so-and-so did something and they all did something different. Not everybody builds an ark. Not everybody leads people out of slavery in Egypt. Not everybody does what all these people in Hebrews 11 does. But sometimes God calls people to particular things and none of us know why, but he's asked you to be faithful in those circumstances. So in one person in the early service, one of the reasons they come to the early service, they've got an autistic son who's going to be with them all their lives. God has called them to be caring for an autistic child, a special needs child that they will care for all their lives. Now what's faith call for in that moment? Be faithful in that circumstance God's called you to. You, you mostly have not done that. You've not been called to that. Most of us haven't, but some have. And for them, they need to complete their faith by doing what God has called them to do in their circumstance. Others might have this. Others might have a spouse suffering from depression all their life, and it's a burden. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's a challenge, and it demands patience. What does God call the spouse who is married to somebody who struggles with depression all their life? What does he call them to do? To be faithful? You might end up with a a loved one, a mother, a father who has Alzheimer's for a number of years and you do your best. And it might take nursing home care. That doesn't disqualify this. It's a horrendous disease. This past week, I did a funeral for a woman who'd been in the nursing home for two years and hadn't said a word. Didn't look with any recognition on her family. Two years. And I struggle with this. I struggle how that has any redeeming value. And God and I have had some conversations about this. Terrifies me to think about that. And I wonder what's the value of this. You see, the value of suffering in Scripture is the person who suffers can rely on God that even though the body is wasting away, that inner man can be renewed day by day with a walk with God. We as Christians believe that. I believe suffering can make you better if you handle it with faith. But here's the thing. What happens if if your mind goes and you can't learn and you can't mature and you can't grow what's the point of that I don't know I couldn't offer this family a whole lot of relief that way but I did tell them this one thing that was revealed was how this family was going to love their was going to honor their loved one regardless of whether that loved one was even aware of them anymore or not it's a beautiful thing it's a I would not want to wish it on anybody but if you are called as a child of someone who ends up with Alzheimer's, you have been called by God to complete your faith and still honor that loved one, even if they have no memory of you. It is a burden. It's terrible. But that's how you complete your faith. And it doesn't matter whether it impresses anybody. It doesn't matter whether it changes you. What matters is God called you to it, so do it. That's harsh. But it's the truth. There are some in this assembly I know 
who've watched the needs of people and they decided I need to be a foster parent. Not everybody needs to. But there are some when God calls you to it and he keeps calling you to it and calling you to it, you need to answer. And you need to complete that call by responding. There's all sorts of things like this that are unique to each person. And no one's going to come and beat you over the head with the Bible saying you've got to do this. It's just that God's laid on your heart. And I believe he lays things on people's hearts like this. And he asks you to complete your faith. So here's your questions this morning. Is your faith... Is it going to make any difference to anybody tomorrow? Is your faith... Can I tell every day that you're working to become more Christ-like? Is your faith... Is it something that's impressing God? Only you can answer these questions for yourself, but James feels the need to ask these questions of his readers because they've lulled themselves into thinking, this autopilot faith that I've got is good enough, and it's pleasing to God enough, and it's alive and living. And James is saying, wait a minute, I'm seeing some things that concern me. For those of you who might be here who are not even spiritually alive, you don't even have a heartbeat. Why? Because you've not been spiritually born again. You can't have spiritual life if you've never been born again of the water and the Spirit. This conversation is completely null and void for you. You've never responded to God and let him give you new life. You've never come and said, I'm ready to give up myself and die to myself and live for God and confess his name, be washed in the waters of baptism, and rise, as Paul says, to walk a new life. Why a new life? Because you have been given new birth. Then you come alive. But some of you have done that many years ago. And as we've asked these questions this morning, you've realized, you know what, I, I don't know that my faith's useful anymore. I don't know that I'm paying any attention to anybody else anymore. Maybe, maybe I've, I've grown so complacent in who I am, I'm not even trying to be Christ-like anymore. It's not a visible difference in me anymore. Maybe you are aware of something that God's called you to, and you keep muting his voice, and you're not completing. I want to ask three questions. Is your faith... Is your faith... Is your faith... Only you can answer that. But if you've taken this spiritual and you find yourself needing to sit down because spiritually you realize you're weak and you need the prayers of this church or you need some direction from somebody about how to revamp your life again and breathe new life into it, that's what the church is here for. And if you're subject to that, make it known.